You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of theology today by continuing to examine soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. We're now ready to discuss the eighth and final item in the order of salvation, or the ordo salutis, and that is glorification. Dr. Spencer, how would you like to begin? By reminding our listeners of all eight items in the ordo salutis. Very well. The list we are using is the following. First, effectual calling. Second, regeneration. Third, repentance and faith, which together are called conversion. Fourth, justification. Fifth, adoption. Sixth, sanctification. Seventh, perseverance. And finally, eighth, glorification. And glorification is a magnificent topic. The term refers to the fact that when Christ returns, believers will receive glorified bodies, often called resurrection bodies. We are told about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 23, where we read, quote, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, unquote. And then in verse 35, Paul anticipates a couple of questions, and he writes, quote, But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Yeah, those are perfectly natural questions. They are, and Paul's answer will not satisfy all of our curiosity, but it does tell us what we need to know. And while those questions are natural and can be perfectly innocent, they can also come from a heart of unbelief. They can be someone saying, essentially, that the resurrection from the dead makes no sense. They might, for example, really be saying, when someone dies because of old age or an accident or their body has been in the grave a long time and decayed, how can they possibly come to life again? Don't be silly. Such things are impossible. I can easily imagine that being the attitude of many people. But the Apostle Paul dealt with that attitude when he was defending himself before King Agrippa. In Acts chapter 26, verse 8, we read that Paul asked the rhetorical question, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And the answer to that question is obvious. If you admit the existence of the eternal, almighty God who created this universe, then raising the dead is not a big deal. And so in answering these questions about the resurrection, Paul first deals with that unbelief. He mildly rebukes those who question the idea of a resurrection by beginning his answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 36, by saying, How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Unquote. And he then goes on to discuss plants as a common example of something similar. You sow a seed, and only when the seed dies, so to speak, does the new plant grow. And while the form of the plant is determined by the seed, the plant does not look like the seed. And at that time, the process of a seed growing into a plant was very mysterious. It certainly was, and it still is to most people, although plant biologists obviously now have a good understanding of the process. But Paul is pointing out that there is a similar situation known by everyone in the natural world 
So why should people be so surprised if God promises to transform in a somewhat analogous manner our natural bodies into something new? And there is both discontinuity and continuity in the way plants reproduce. A seed is not the same thing as the plant. That is discontinuity. But the plant comes from and is determined by the seed. That is continuity. Paul expresses these ideas of both continuity and discontinuity in the next verse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 37, he writes, When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. And then after discussing different kinds of bodies, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44, to say, quote, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body." We're told a lot in these verses. Our resurrection bodies will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual bodies. Now, most people probably contrast spiritual with physical, so they may wonder how a physical body can be spiritual. And physical is frequently contrasted with spiritual, so that's not at all an unreasonable thing for people to wonder about. But the words are used in other ways, too. Wayne Grudem points out that, quote, In the Pauline epistles, the word spiritual, Greek pneumatikos, never means non-physical, but rather consistent with the character and activity of the Holy Spirit, unquote. He says a clear paraphrase of Paul's meaning in this verse would be, quote, It is sown a natural body, subject to the characteristics and desires of this age, but it is raised a spiritual body, completely subject to the will of the Holy Spirit and responsive to the Holy Spirit's guidance. I like that paraphrase. It seems to capture the meaning of what Paul's saying. I like it as well, although I must point out that I cut something out. Grudem's full statement began by saying, It is sown a natural body, subject to the characteristics and desires of this age, and governed by its own sinful will. I left out the phrase about being governed by its own sinful will because I think it's open to misunderstanding. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul wrote the following about believers, quote, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ, unquote. Now, everyone is governed by his will, and our wills do still have sin, but we are no longer slaves to sin, as Paul argues in Romans chapter 6. We have the power to say no to sin. I agree with your change, but the rest of the statement is good. Paul's intent was not to imply that our resurrection bodies will not be physical. They are, after all, still called bodies. But rather, his intent clearly was to show that our resurrection bodies will in some way be qualitatively different from the bodies we have now. They will be fit for living eternally in the new heaven and the new earth. I think that's right. And notice that our resurrection bodies will be superior in every way to our present natural bodies. In the list Paul gave in verses 42 through 44, every trait of the resurrection body is superior to the corresponding trait in the natural body. 
the natural body is said to be perishable, dishonorable, and weak, whereas the resurrection body will be imperishable, glorious, and powerful. And this list is, of course, meant to be representative, not exhaustive. The word dishonor is an interesting choice. Can you flesh out more fully what that word means in this context? It is interesting, so I'm glad you asked. The Greek word translated as dishonor in 1 Corinthians 15.43 is atomia, and could also be rendered disgrace or shame. It is the same word Paul used in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, where he says that, quote, God gave them, referring to those who rejected him, over to shameful lusts, unquote. Sin is shameful. And even though a believer is no longer a slave to sin, in other words, we are not controlled by sin, we do nonetheless still have sin dwelling in us. So there is still shame. The good news is that when we die, God perfects our soul. We will no longer have any sin in us. We will be incapable of sinning. Hallelujah. That is a wonderful thought. It is a wonderful thought indeed. And for the majority of believers who have either already died or will die before Christ returns, their sin is removed even prior to receiving the resurrection body. The writer of the book of Hebrews contrasts the glorious offer of grace made to us with the covenant God made with the people through Moses on Mount Sinai, which is embodied in the Ten Commandments. In Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24, he wrote, quote, But you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is incredible. Thousands upon thousands of angels and the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Clearly, these believers exist at this time as disembodied spirits, but they are perfect, which must mean that they are without sin. That is certainly true. Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, that, quote, Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. In other words, just as we now have a sinful nature that is inherited from Adam, who is the earthly man spoken of here, so shall we then bear the likeness of Jesus Christ, who is the man from heaven. That is the meaning, yes. We must never forget that Jesus Christ is eternal. He didn't begin to exist at his incarnation. He is not created. He is God. He came from heaven to earth to save people. And getting back to our resurrection bodies, not every believer will experience physical death. Paul also tells us about those who are still alive when Christ returns. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, he wrote, quote, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, unquote. When he says that we will not all sleep, that is a euphemism for physical death. Those who are still alive when Christ returns will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. The dead will be raised, but those who are still alive will be instantly changed. That will be an amazing event, to say the least. 
Philippians chapter 3 verse 21 tells us that Christ, quote, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Yeah, that is an indescribably wonderful thing to anticipate. But before we go on to discuss glorification further, I think it's important to draw a conclusion from 1 Corinthians 15 about how we should live now. Paul closes this amazing chapter by writing in verses 57 and 58, quote, But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That is a marvelous exhortation. No one likes to do work that turns out to be in vain, but God promises that our work in the Lord is never in vain. And so we need, as Paul wrote, to give ourselves fully to that work. As he said in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The Christian life is full of joy, but we are to work hard. And so we have something wonderful to look forward to even prior to Christ's return. Our souls will be perfected when we die. But glorification, properly speaking, refers to our final eternal state. We were created as creatures with both a body and a soul or spirit, and we will exist in the future and forever after that as perfected creatures with perfect sinless souls and perfect resurrection bodies. That makes me think of when Jesus was teaching his disciples that no one knows when he will return. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 44 through 46, Jesus said, So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Those verses also make clear that we are to be busy in this life doing the work that God has ordained for us to do. This theme is repeated in a number of places because of its importance. As just one more example, we read in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 38, that Jesus said to his disciples, quote, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. That's incredible. The master will actually wait on his servants. It is incredible, but the parable is not nearly as incredible as the reality. We will be glorified only because Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master, took our sins upon himself and died for us. Now, that is more incredible than the parable. And as you said, the message of those parables and other passages is clear. We are saved by grace, but we are saved unto good works, as the King James renders that part of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We have work to do. And returning to our discussion of glorification, 1 Corinthians 15 is not the only place the Bible speaks about this future reality. Most notably, there's an amazing passage at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
Yes, let me read that passage. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13-18, through 18, Paul wrote, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. I can't imagine something more encouraging than that. We will never die in the ultimate sense of that word. Unless Christ comes again first, we will all die physically, but that is not eternal death. And Paul says that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. In other words, when Christ returns, he will bring with him all believers who have already died. These are the souls of righteous men made perfect that we were told about in Hebrews 12, verse 23. As Paul wrote, those who are still alive when the Lord returns will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who are alive when Christ returns will not receive their resurrection bodies before the believers who have previously died. All believers will be glorified together. We are united as the body of Christ. That's right. And so Paul says that, quote, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, unquote. I think Grudem interprets this correctly. He says it is the souls of believers who have died that will return with Christ, and their bodies will be raised from the dead to be joined with their souls. And of course, those will be resurrection bodies, not natural ones. That will be an indescribably wonderful day for believers. But this passage raises one small question. Paul wrote that we who are still alive at the coming of the Lord... There are some who would say that this implies Paul expected Christ to return in his lifetime. Well, grammatically that could be true, but it is not at all necessary, and in fact I don't think it's reasonable. Paul clearly wrote and ministered with the realization, and I would say even the expectation, that many people would be brought to faith based on the written testimony of the apostles long after they were all gone. But independent of what his expectations were, it's not at all necessary to assume he thought Christ would return during his life. He used the first-person plural pronoun we as a literary device to include himself with his readers. Very well. Well, I think we've presented the basics of the doctrine of glorification, and I look forward to continuing our discussion. But we're out of time for today, so I'll take this opportunity to remind our listeners that they can send questions or comments to Info at whatdoesthewordsay.org, and we'll do our best to respond. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say, brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine the doctrine of sanctification, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. 
We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.